What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com slash podcast or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're speaking with Sandra Havilak. Sandy was admitted to the Virginia State Bar in September of 1986. She was admitted to practice before the Virginia Supreme Court in 1986, the U.S. District Court, Eastern District, U.S. Court of Appeals, Fourth Circuit, and U.S. Bankruptcy Court in 1986. She was also admitted to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit in 1989. She received her JD from George Mason University School of Law in 1986 and her BA from King's College in 1982, having graduated magna cum laude. Sandy's law practice focuses on family law, divorce, domestic relations, equitable distribution, spousal support, child support, child custody, premarital agreements, post-divorce modifications, juvenile law, abuse and neglect, guardianship, and appellant practice. She's been recognized so many places, including in the Washingtonian as top family law lawyer since 2017, Washington, D.C., Virginia super lawyer since 2007, Northern Virginia top lawyer since 2008 and best lawyer in America since 2014. She's AV peer reviewed, rated by Martindale Hubble. She was the recipient of the Northern Virginia Women's Attorneys Association Women of the Year Award in 2016 and was a leader in the law, Virginia Lawyers Weekly class of 2015. Virginia Lawyers Media. She's the immediate past chair of the Virginia State Bar Disciplinary Board and served on the Virginia State Bar Standing Committee on Legal Ethics, the 5th District Disciplinary Committee, and the Virginia State Bar Professionalism Faculty. Sandy has served on the Boyd Graves Conference since 1993 and the Virginia Bar Association Commission on Special Needs of Children. She's past president of the Virginia Women's Attorneys Association and past chair of the Fairfax Bar Association Juvenile Court Committee and Judicial Selection Committee. As you can see, Sandy is an active member of the American Bar Association. Welcome, Sandy. Hi, Bonnie. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm excited to speak with you today on so many levels. We work together often on cases, but I'm also aware of your deep background and your work often involves even more time in the world of divorce than ours does because it's what you do exclusively. What made you choose this career that you're so clearly successful in? Well, I didn't really choose this career. This career chose me. I clerked for a law firm that did criminal law throughout law school, and I was promised a job when I passed the bar. When I did, in fact, pass the bar, the uh, men I worked for weren't ready for a female lawyer. So I moved on to a larger firm that did commercial litigation, real estate, and other things, including family law. When that firm imploded, I joined a 
colleague of mine in the private practice of law in juvenile court became my home. I did court-appointed work and started doing a lot of family law cases. And family law is a particularly emotional place in the law, I would say. How have you, because you didn't intend to start in family law, how have you adapted to that over the years? It is a very emotional field to be in. I tried to balance myself against the client's emotional well-being, and I try and encourage clients to work with therapists and other people and use me as their lawyer. We do the same. That's great advice. In the over three plus decades that you've had a front row seat to the divorce industry, what are the most significant changes that you've seen? Well, clearly right now, technology. Mm -hmm. Technology has affected the practice of law in general and um, as a litigator, because of COVID in particular, we are doing everything remotely. So court hearings, meetings with clients, everything is remote and very little in-person contact. The other thing I would ask, add, though, from what I've seen change is I've also seen my clients become older and mm-hmm. getting divorced, which is very sad for me. And also we've seen a more of a focus on guardianship cases that I haven't done in the past, but I've started doing more in the last five years. So talk a little bit about that. What is a guardianship case? Well, a guardianship case is when someone who's under a disability, in my case, what it is, is really older people whose children think that the parent can't take care of themselves. So then there becomes a fight over whether they can or cannot take care of themselves. It's kind of like a divorce, except with children or sometimes spouses, but it's mostly children. Interesting. Okay. In the U.S., people are not required to use an attorney to divorce. I'm not sure who would ever do that uh, in their right mind anyway, but in every case, it's essential to know your legal rights. Why else is it really a good idea to choose an attorney to represent them? I think in family law cases, it's a disservice to yourself if you don't hire someone to help you through the process, especially when you have issues like spousal support, military retirements, general retirements, because if your agreement doesn't cover it, you're going to waive it and you don't realize it when you're doing it yourself. Well, and I'm going to put a fine point on that because I've read so many of the settlements you've written. Everyone hopes when they get divorced and I've been divorced, you hope that that settlement paper goes into a drawer and never needs to be pulled back out again. But if it does need to be pulled back out again, we have seen time and time again where language, knowing the law, which is your job, that language is critical to getting an outcome if there's a dispute later on. Absolutely. If you don't have the correct language in an agreement, you are going to to lose in trying to get some outcome that you're seeking. The other thing I'd like to amplify here is how creative the law really can be when you have an excellent attorney. And I know that most of the settlements will include some version of disposing of or trading property. So talk just for a minute about how creative you can be from We might refinance this property. We might sell this property. All the different ways you can arrange the language to accommodate either of those choices. Right. That's important, especially if you're settling a case. If you're going to court, you're you're limited by what the statute provides. But if you're trying to settle a case, it's really important to think about what assets you want. Can you swap assets? How are the assets titled? And can you afford those assets? And it's, and that's where, you know, Bonnie, you and I, we've worked together. It's important to have a financial person backing you up to help your client understand what they might need to survive in the future. 
like we did last night when I was calling and texting. <laughs> you had a late mediation. Those are tough ones. Um, so let's take a little detour here and just talk about process of divorce for a minute, because in order for people not to spend money, if they'd only known better, what do you want to share about the processes people can take? And I'll share my bias after you've answered, but in choosing between, say, a collaborative process, a mediation process, across the kitchen table or a litigation process? Okay, well, it depends, you know, from my perspective, you know, litigation is obviously going to be the most expensive route you could take in a divorce, except if the other side is so unreasonable, sometimes litigation is your only alternative. Mm. A collaborative process, you know, collaborative is a term of art for family law lawyers. And I'm not a fan of collaborative law in the sense that if you hired me and it doesn't work out, then you have to find a new lawyer. And to me, that's also flushing money down the toilet. If you have two good lawyers and other professionals to back you, it is collaborative in the sense that you're working as a team, but that if the team crumbles or the other side crumbles, you still have your team to go to court with you and you're not losing all that time and effort you've put into it. So it's really important that you have a good team working with you to um, help through and if you could mediate, mediate's probably the best way to do it because you could get to the best alternative. You could be as creative as you want to be. Um, as long as when you write that agreement, the creativity is in there and you can enforce it. So my bias is, is very close to what you've just described in terms of, I think, the smartest financial use of money in a divorce process, aside from hiring a financial professional to help you understand your money if you don't, is the attorney choice. And then, you know, hopefully your spouse is making a great choice there too. And those two strategic professionals are working on the behalf of each of you to wiggle their way to an outcome. And my only bias with mediation is we see too many well-intended spouses wanting to believe that they're bad actor spouse, and they know that person best, but they choose not to look at who that person is. They determine that they want to go the mediation route only to find out what they really knew was true. This person isn't prepared to negotiate transparently. So back to the litigation piece we go. And that's always unfortunate. It's hard to watch, but it happens frequently. So that's on the spouse to understand the choices of the process and make those choices well. And my last bias is kitchen table. We see a lot of women who want to be friendly in the divorce process. And I'm, I'm picking on women because they typically are the underdog in terms of understanding their marital estate, which is what's going to get split. And they're trying to agree to things that they just don't understand the impact of. So so thank you for your amplification of the process choices, which actually, you know, are even bigger in terms of there's different ways to mediate and so forth. But your your attorney is going to explain all that to you. And, and I just think the other thing that you and I have seen is people that change attorneys more than once. I think four is not uncommon, unfortunately. So there's a lot of things that go into picking an attorney. Unfortunately, it's not enough at the front end. What should someone hiring a family law attorney focus on to get it right the first time? I personally believe that people should interview, especially if this is a new process for them, more than one attorney. You don't know what the attorney is going to. Every attorney is different. And so I think it's important that you, you meet different lawyers, see what their approach is, and see who you feel the most comfortable with. I'll tell you as a general policy, I won't come into a case, especially if there's litigation that's already started as a number two lawyer, 
I certainly won't do a number three lawyer. And my only exception to that is if it comes from a referral source that I trust and, and, and I know I could rely upon. But the person who is hiring the lawyer needs to feel comfortable. A lot of times it's expensive. You might have to spend a couple thousand dollars to meet with different lawyers, but you have to hire someone you feel comfortable with. And generally the process takes a year, if not longer, depending upon your jurisdiction. So setting the expectation of how long these things take, given that it's, you know, you're dealing with a court system in some cases outside, you don't, you don't control their timeline, Correct. obviously. And then there's, in, depending on where we're standing, there's certain laws in certain states that require you to take a waiting period. Exactly. In Virginia, if you have children and an agreement, you could get divorced in a year. If you have no children and an agreement, you could get divorced in six months. But if you have no agreement, you're separate and apart for a year, and then you go to court. So there are delays in the whole process. I think there's another important aspect when we're helping people watch their pocketbook that you've explained. I've seen you explain to clients before about it doesn't have to be Sandy all the time if they hire your office. So talk a little bit about how you spread the charges around. Yes. Um, in my office, we have uh, paralegals that are from $75 an hour up, associates in myself at 450 an hour. So you don't need me to do basic discovery issues or draft pleadings. Of course, I review just about everything that goes out of my office, but there's some things that you really need to let a young staff member do because it's going to be cost effective for the client at the end of the day. So I think that putting the fine point on that is really important. When you're interviewing attorneys, you want to look at their business setup. It is a business. No one's doing, there's no free lunches. So you want to examine whether they have the capacity and staff to accommodate you not having to pay the lawyer to do everything. I think that's a really key point. Absolutely. Along those lines, when I think about the depth of someone with your experience, I'm also aware that your hourly rate might be higher than another family law attorney just starting out. But can you talk about the ways that you manage that for a client, which you've just said, but I guess what I'm getting at, because it's the same issue we have in our office and with CPAs or any professional we hire, I really just want you to talk about how the value of hiring someone who knows what they're doing instead of learning on the client's dime. Just that is the point. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, I'm speaking for my firm. All sure. Right? And, you know, I could comment on others, but in my firm, it's important. You know, you have young lawyers who, you know, we're hiring someone new right from a law clerk. That person will be used to draft some basic pleadings, which we have, but, you know, to work with the client to fill in the blanks and it comes to me. But, you're paying that person $100 an hour instead of $450. Mm. And sometimes clients, I, I always tell clients, I hope you like the person you're working with because then you don't have to pay me ever. But I oversee the big thing. And if you want me for court, I'm there for court. The other important thing I think that I'm not afraid to do is to hire professionals. $450 an hour is expensive. I often joke, you know, I hope I never have to hire me. <laughs> but I'm not afraid to call Bonnie or a CPA or somebody else who could help do the basic stuff at a cheaper rate and be smarter in that field than I am. So you need to be able to reach out to people. I think that's really important point. And the other thing that we both run up against all the time is the need for therapy in the process. And every time a client pays the wrong professional for the wrong job, they're going to ultimately end up with the right professional paying twice. Exactly. Exactly. I tell clients all the time, I don't have my PhD. I'm not a therapist. I'm a lawyer. I'm a good lawyer. 
And I always recommend a therapist to help them get through this tough time. It's a tough time. Yeah. And for all my work in this field and, and uh, my own life experience, I benefited greatly from therapy when my adult divorce was happening. So I do recommend that. There's probably nothing that you haven't seen over the years. Yet for somebody going through divorce, it actually feels like they're the only one it's happening to. And this is the first time this particular thing has ever happened. So how do you reassure clients that they will actually survive this process? Well, I don't think I've seen everything because when I say that something new happens, it <laughs> blows me away. But I try and tell clients that, you know, many people go through this and will get them through it. I know this is the most important thing that's going on in their life and that I respect that and I will be there for them to get them through it. And hopefully at the end of the day, while I might not be able to save the marriage, which I always try and encourage clients to do in the first place, we'll get the best outcome possible for them. So let's walk back to mediation for a minute because people often have a need to tell their story and that's extremely expensive to do in a courtroom. And in my experience, testifying in a courtroom, people don't actually get a chance to tell their story very much. So how does mediation lend itself to getting to tell your story? Well, we generally will use judges as our mediators, retired judges to do mediations. And the nice thing about using a retired judge is one, they've seen it. So they know what the case is about and they've seen things like this before, but two, they come and they talk to you and they let you tell your story to the judge so that you're heard. And that when he's giving advice or guidance, he knows the background to it. You don't get that in a courtroom. Judges are not as sympathetic or as understanding and you're bound by the rules of evidence. And what people might not understand about a courtroom as a practical matter is the constraints of time. Exactly. It's a little bit like a factory in terms of there's a docket, that docket will get done, right. and there isn't a lot of opportunity to expand. If I have a meeting go late, the next meeting simply waits. It doesn't right. really work that same way in a courtroom. No, correct? it doesn't work that way at all. And I'll tell you, the really sad part is like in our juvenile court, which it doesn't do property issues, but it does children's issues. They're limiting your hearing to two hours. Let me tell you, you cannot put on a custody case in two hours. Um, and then the financial aspect of it in a courtroom, you're paying a lot of money to prepare your case for court. And then you're not going to feel like you, it's rare that you feel like you really got your day in court. Yeah, I think that's a true frustration that people really have trouble understanding before they live it. And then that's the reason that we're talking about it now is so if you believe us and you should believe us uh, that maybe you'll prepare differently mentally for which process you actually want to use. So one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on today, Sandy, is I, I really think you're a terrific attorney and not just because you're smart enough to include a financial professional in, in many of your cases, but why do you think so many attorneys fail to include a financial professional in what is likely the largest financial transaction of that person since everything they own, everything they owe, everything they earn is tucked inside the divorce negotiations? I think that many attorneys are threatened to tell a client, I need help or threaten to bring in a financial professional who's smarter than you. I personally subscribe to the philosophy that I want to surround myself with smarter people than me because I'll get the better deal for my client. I think that 
lawyers don't have that view. They're afraid they're going to lose their client if they reach out to other professionals to help them. And I will say in my 30 years of doing this work with many different attorneys, the most successful in terms of I, you know, the person gets through the divorce and even though it was really tough, they'd still recommend that attorney. That's because that attorney stayed in their channel, used their exquisite legal expertise to help the client and brought in other people. First of all, other eyes can be refreshing. And I learn something new in, in most of the cases. So I, I just think that that's important for attorneys to hear is that, you know, our job in some ways is to make you look like a hero while you use your legal expertise. And we tend to those other details that you may not be as comfortable with in terms of the nitty gritty. How do we do it? What's the financial rule here, et cetera? Well, I just want to expand on that because, you know, yesterday we won't use names here, but it was so useful to me to have you on the phone and texting and emailing when we had questions that came up during mediation, the client needed to see the financial differences on spousal support and how that would impact her if we went from 5,000 to 4,000 and, and what were the tax ramifications? Could I have done that? I don't think I would have settled it at 11 o'clock last night, but having you available just made the whole case move much smoother. So something else that I've seen over and over again in negotiations. So I've participated in uh, kitchen table, uh, not my preference. And I've participated in many litigations, uh, testifying, private arbitration and mediations. But there's a phenomenon that happens that I know you're well familiar with. And it's almost a fever that starts to heat up as we get close. Mm -hmm. everyone's tired, right? Everyone's tired, especially the client. And there's this fever to get to the end. And for me, that's the spot when the client starts to talk about the cost of freedom, just get me out of here, I'll sign right. anything. And it is almost precisely at that time, because if you understand negotiation, strategically, that's the time to be paying attention. Exactly. So we slow it down long enough to breathe and look at the numbers right. and digest those before we turn that fever over to signing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I've been doing this for a lot of years. The one thing I've learned is even as I get older, I can't focus. 11 o'clock at night, I'm checking out. Sure. So how do you expect a client to focus at 11 o'clock at night? It's really important that clients see agreements well before mediation, at least a shell. So they have read it as many times as I have. And all we're doing is really moving numbers and, and plugging in different things. Because if they can't, there's no way they're going to understand that agreement at 11 o'clock. I couldn't agree more. I feel like my work in divorce has taught me so much about marriage. And it did take me a do-over to get it right. What would you tell someone getting married today to think about from your side of the desk, all the things that you see before they tie that knot? I would really tell them, you know, as I joke all the time that I could write a book about the things I've seen. The things that cause a divorce, from my viewpoint, are money, really it's lack of money, kids and sex. Talk to your intended spouse about the finances, exchange credit reports, have an understanding of what you're going to do with money. And really, if you don't agree, maybe do a prenup because that will protect you if you have assets, especially if this is marriage number two. And you should really talk about children. Do you want children? And how are the children going to change your lives? And let me tell you, what we see with men more than women is that the children become the focus of the women's life and the men feel like they're second-class citizens. That becomes a problem. 
And then, of course, sex is always a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't talk about money or sex, so that leaves the kids. Exactly. That's so very, very interesting. But you touched on something in a prenup, uh, certainly. So let's just talk a minute about prenups and postnups. Postnups in particular, because I think people don't even think about that as an option. They definitely don't. It's rare that you see clients who will call you and say, can I cover my assets now going forward? I, actually, I just had that phone call. And we could cover it, but the spouse doesn't want to cover it. So she's going to be left getting a divorce if she wants to move forward with it. It's important, though, that you realize if your marriage is over and you need to protect your assets, get out. So you could do that. Yes. And then it, can't you also write an agreement if the people don't want to divorce? And I'm going to insert a couple of reasons we've seen over the years. Healthcare wants to continue yes. or a religious aspect. The idea of divorce is offensive to them, but they can't go forward in the same household. You can also write agreements to accommodate those situations, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yes, okay. you definitely could do that. So again, we're back to the creativity of the law, which I think people think of as rigid. Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with smart attorneys, the creativity is there. Right. Yes. So we're taping our talk today during the summer of COVID and the courts closed for some number of weeks at the height of the virus. What did your work world look like during that period? I have to say that my workload changed in the sense that we did become much better at remote working. We put cameras, you know, there's a time my IT guy told me, you know, I could get a camera for $10. Now it's a hundred dollars. Um, and hard to find. And hard to find. Yeah. And you have to put cameras on every computer. Yeah. Our courts did shut down for hearings except for emergencies and protective orders, but we had to we had to switch our technology. I would say from the plus side, I didn't have traffic. We did not shut down my office. The deal in my office was everybody had to stay healthy. And if they one person got it, the office was going to be shut down. We did get a lot of old stuff cleaned up that we, we never had time to do, but we kept working. Very good. And talking more about technology, AI, artificial intelligence, and blockchain technologies will one day change the way couples get information on their own finances as they face divorce versus the rather onerous process we have today of, of discovery and still some paper. What's your favorite technology that you use today and what technology do you wish was available for your work? Well, I probably shouldn't say this, but <laughs> I hate technology. I just hate it. I hate, I was joking with someone yesterday. I had to buy computer glasses because my eyes strain all the time. So I don't know if that's technology, but I had to do that. I think technology from helping me, of course, you have your Adobe, you have all different kinds of financial technology that is really big in the legal field. And we do that. But with regard to the practice, it's wreaked havoc on the practice because, you know, your phones, people are recording everything. Nobody's aware of, you can't record, it, at least in Virginia, you can't record if I'm not present for the recording. You have nanny cams. I tried a whole case where all we did was play recordings all day. Mm. So to that end, I don't really like technology. Well, I do know that one thing that I, I've seen your office use, and I know other offices use it too, and you mentioned Adobe, that ability to search documents exactly. saves yeah. uh, quite a bit of time. And then also, I think you focused on the problem when children are involved, technologies right. 
a little bit of a, a cold remedy. And then the expectations of clients uh, using right. email like a chat function is this, uh, you know, there's a lot there to improve on. But I do think things, I actually think things are going in the right direction in terms of if you've got one partner who just doesn't know what's going on in the marital estate and has to pull it out of the institutions, my right. hope for technology is that someday those things will be taken care of by social security number. Well, that would be wonderful. And I do think, you know, the, from a discovery perspective, banks and everybody, they're getting up to the point where they will email you securely. I mean, so to that extent, technology is great. You get, or you get it on a thumb drive and it's searchable instead of having to sit down and, and comb through paper after page after page. That's wonderful about technology. Yeah. And there was something you said too, that I wanted to jump in on, but I've, I've lost that thought. So I'm going to go with when you're in a courtroom, is there very much technology used between the attorneys and the judge to present a case? Well, it's interesting you should raise that because I practice primarily in Fairfax County Circuit Court. Some of our judges are very technologically savvy and some of them aren't. Lawyers are some technologically savvy and some aren't. So when you're in a courtroom and you have a judge who has expectations of you using technology, you better use technology. Mm. One of the judges I know loves a particular med mouth firm because they come in for juries and we don't have juries in family law cases, but, and they just put on a show oh. and they have experts there who are helping them and move it along. When I know I'm in a particular judge's courtroom, I will make sure I have somebody with me to make sure all my technology works. And technology is great when you know how to use it. Yes, that is so true. And and it just is completely frustrating if it doesn't, if it's not your day, right? If the gremlins have shown up. So I testify in court, private arbitration and attend mediations, but even as a professional, I'm surprised at the wide disparity in experience and outcomes in any one of those venues on a given day. As an attorney who spends your days in these venues, what should the almost 30,000 Virginians, and if we're talking to a wider audience, all the people divorcing each year, what should they understand about perhaps a TV version that they have in their head and what they might actually experience in a courtroom? They're entirely different. (laughs) The rules of evidence apply or should apply in family law cases, which they do not apply in TV land. It's not nearly as glamorous. Although I will say when I'm going to court, I tell clients all the time, it's all about the show. And you have to be able to put that show on and you have to be able to impress a judge. And you have to understand, though, that we are all limited by the rules of evidence. And it's hard to get clients to understand that. Well, I'm really glad that you made the connection to theater because that is often how we describe it, too. Think of it as theater and, you know, how engaged you are and who you're paying attention to and who you identify with. That's what's going on. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good metaphor. I thought of what I wanted to ask you about part of the process that I think people just don't understand. We harp on getting the documents because that can stand up to scrutiny in terms of, I remember this being true, or here's my Excel sheet that I made up. And we really rely on those documents because they do stand up to scrutiny. Can you talk a little bit more about the discovery process, what it means, how long it can take, when it doesn't work, and the cost of it? Well, discovery is probably the most expensive part of your divorce case. You get to, one, ask the other side to produce documents or answer questions. You get to issue subpoenas to institutions. 
you're also limited. Can you go out of state and find these places where money is being hidden? And, it, and when you do that, it's very expensive to do that. Discovery, if the person doesn't answer, they get, you know, generally it's, you get give them three weeks to do it as a professional courtesy, extend it. That could take months to get complete discovery. And then when you get it, you got to review it and make sure you've gotten everything you need. It's probably the most expensive part short of going to court to getting everything together in a big case, a big financial case. Okay. And then before we kind of leave the subject of divorce particulars, I want to talk about support a little bit. Support is the transfer of income from one spouse to the other. It can be monthly. It can be a lump sum. It can be, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Again, creativity being your friend. But why is that the hardest conversation to have? Or do you think it is? It, 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 well, not only is it the hardest conversation to have, it's also the hardest thing to prove to a judge, right? Money, there, you cannot live as well on when you're living together as you do separately. Two people can't split up and have the same lifestyle they have. You know, I love my clients who say to me, well, I used to do this, this, and this. Well, that's great, but you don't have the money to do this, this, and this. And so when you go to court, you have to prove not only your need, but an ability on the other side to pay and what is your need? And that's where you become really invaluable to me, Bonnie. You always help clients understand this is where you're going to be. If you're young, are you working? And if you're not working, why aren't you working? And judges will tell you, go get a job. I tell clients when they're young, go get a job. Yesterday, my client was 57, 58 years old. Uh, the judge initially was like, well, why aren't you working? Well, she can't work. She hasn't worked for 27 years. She's not going to start now. Right. And it's an unreasonable expectation. But at the same time, Living in Northern Virginia on $180,000 a year, which is the spouse's salary, doesn't go far. Doesn't go far. It's hard for people to, who live in less expensive places to appreciate that. And yet we wouldn't still be up there with New York and San Francisco exactly. and some other places. Yeah, I find support a very difficult conversation. But one of the impediments to getting that done for someone is their inability to figure out how much they cost, exactly. what they spend. So that's job one if you really want that to occur in your case. So switching gears a little bit, in addition to what you do in the legal field, you're also an accomplished businesswoman with employees. That's how your law firm is structured. And that you told us a little bit at the beginning about why you chose that path over working in someone else's law firm. But there's a lot involved in keeping a business running keeping yes. you're in a building with rent yes. or you own it. I don't know which, but the point is, is that there's a lot going on there. So talk about the business aspect of it and why you decided to do that versus, you know, taking your skills and making a lot of money in someone else's firm. Well, I had the choice of staying at a firm or, or probably moving on to a different firm, but I decided that because of who I am, I wanted to be my own boss and I thought I could, I could run a firm effectively and efficiently. Um, and so when I joined my first partner, we rented space in an office and then we we started creating systems and I went from there. I, I didn't stay with her very long because we had different views on life, um, but I find I enjoy running the practice. The practice of law is a business. It is business and it becomes burdensome when you have to worry about paying your bills, who your suppliers are. Now, really, we worry about computers. I mean, when I'm setting up for a court hearing, I don't have one computer. I have three going in case something happens. Oh, I interesting. only pray that I don't have a power outage. That's my biggest fear when I have a court case now. So all of those things you have to worry about. But I think um, it's important and I enjoy it. And I don't think I could work for somebody else at this point. 
Now, when a law firm is a business, because I, I uh, do exit planning with business owners, and I'm curious, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is you can't sell to anybody because you're a law firm. So what are those constraints? You know, I really learned, need to learn those more, but you, you're not allowed. You can't sell your client. It's your client could go wherever your client wants to go. But uh, my understanding, I don't want to be quoted on this, is that you, you could say to, you know, Susie Smith, who wants to buy your practice or buy you out, this is what it's worth. I always joke when we value businesses, right? I'm going through a divorce. I joke with my husband, if we're valuing my business, my business is my furniture because nobody could buy my clients. Yeah. And if I'm not in my business, there is no business. But I think that you, people will come in and look and see what you have set up and how you have it running and pay you a price for it and hope clients stay with you. But there's no guarantee. And the other thing that I've read, and I, I don't know, maybe things have changed, but I my understanding was that you can't sell to a non-lawyer. You can't That's be a non-lawyer owning the firm, except in D.C. of all places. Yeah. I believe D.C. is the only little bubble where you don't have to be a lawyer to own the law firm. Right. You have to be a lawyer to, in order to own the law firm or own any interest in the law firm. So when I think about that from a business aspect, you know, you've grown this thing, it's working well, and yet those are the constraints when you sell. It's really interesting. And curiously, you probably don't know this number, but just from your anecdotally, from your experience, how common is it to have a woman owner of a law firm? I, I would bet it's, it, it's slim. Still small. Yeah, yeah. very small. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So as we wrap up, a fundamental belief that we hold here on the podcast and one of our whys for doing it is that by sharing our real stories, we learn from each other, get to know each other, and we bridge the distance between each other. Is there a story you can share with our listeners about how you know that this is not a dress rehearsal? You know, when you asked me this before, I was, I've been thinking about it. I think that the thing that I've learned through doing the divorce work is that one, I don't want to go through a divorce. <laughs> I, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. And two, how important it is to value every day you have in your spouse and your children and not to forget that they're important to you and that it's just important to work hard at it so that it works and you don't have to end up in sitting in my office. Exactly. And I do think there's so much around understanding marriage. And then there's the other piece of it. And I don't know if you do any work in this area, but where people partner up, but don't marry, but need agreements. Yes, absolutely. So that's, we see millennials doing, making right. those choices. They're going to buy property together and wait to marry. Yes. So that's the kind of thing that you can address as well, right? So it's yes. about protecting people and so that they can go pay attention to their relationship. Exactly. And to be prepared going into it, you know, I'll tell you my saddest story. I'll end with my saddest story. My favorite client, he was 80 years old, Aww. 80 years old, getting a divorce, getting a divorce. Oh my! And he didn't want a divorce. They were married for 50 years, Aww. but she, she just got ugly towards the end. And it's a long story about how it ended. He landed in my office, but he was a colonel in the military and he didn't want a divorce uh, and they didn't have much, but he ended up taking this, Thing all the way through court because his wife wouldn't resolve anything. And it really taught me, you know, you really do need to value what you have. And if you're not happy, which clearly they weren't happy, get out. Because whatever time you have left, exactly. make something of it. Exactly. Well, thank you, Sandy, for your time and your insights and your wisdom.
Well, you're welcome. And thank you for having me. We wish you continued happiness, health, and success. If you'd like to learn more about Sandy Haverlack, especially if you or someone you care about is facing divorce, please go to her website at www.haverlacklaw.com. That's www.hav like Victor, R I L like Larry, A K L like Larry, A W.com. This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.